Okay, well, Titus was uh, written by Paul against the background of Titus being there in, in Crete. And uh, let's just have a look at chapter 1, <coughs> verse 12, where he says that the, the Cretans are liars, they're idle, and uh, generally uh, slimy sort of people. Now, <coughs> Crete was a, an island, and the people there were maybe typical sort of port dwellers, making a living from entertaining passing sailors and their passengers, just waiting uh, for one ship to come, entertain the guys, then they go off again, and there's a big gap where they've basically got nothing to do and uh, just hang around, good climate, etc., uh, beach bum uh, kind of life. So these people became disposed, let's say, to laziness from good life, easy money, pleasant climate, etc. And you may think, well, <clears throat> I don't live in a place where there's easy money nor pleasant climate, I have to work hard, etc. But, you know, in the world in which we live, it would be true to say that actually we have an easier life than very, very many people have historically had. Technology, for one thing, has made life an awful lot easier. And in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the dust out of which you were made. Uh, that curse is, of course, still there, but it has been greatly reduced, I would say, in the lives of very, very many of us. We are living in a soft age. There, there is no question that we are in, in many ways, com particularly compared to uh, generations before us. And so I, I think that how Paul is writing here to Titus and the issues that he picks to uh, advise Titus to, to teach the church about that in, in Crete are very, very relevant to, to all of us. Whether or not we might be obviously and identifiably uh, living the good life with uh, maybe retirement or maybe not having to go to work because another family member is working or whatever. Um, th the point is, we live in a soft age. And although we make a lot of excuses for ourselves that we poor darlings kind of thing, the fact is this is a soft age. And compared to the lives of people living centuries ago, we are living a very, very good life. I mean, if you could transport somebody from, uh, you know, say, a couple of thousand years ago to come and look at our lives, I mean, they'd be like, wow, that's how the emperor lives. That's really how it is. Soft mattresses, electricity, I mean, wow. And I think we need to just remember where we stand within, within history, within time. We do live in the age of the good life and the easy life in so many ways. Those people... Uh, certainly those hearing these words, you want water, you turn a tap on. You don't have to go and pull it out of a well. You don't have to run hither and thither trying to get rid of the water after you've, uh, after you've used it, etc. Sewage, plumbing, etc. is there. So then, these people in Crete who had the good life, they started to go wrong. And it's interesting how the, the church there had started to go wrong. Because he's warning all the time here about the danger of turning to Judaism... And he says in verse 10 that they suffered from those who were of the circumcision. And these people were raising all sorts of empty kind of arguments about words. So then they were not harnessing the good life as they should have done. They were getting involved in arguments about um, words, vain arguments about uh, theology. They were dividing against themselves. It was a sort of neo kind of Judaism that was becoming attractive to them. And they had forgotten, it seems, about 
the the grace of God, which is a major theme in the uh, in the second and third chapter here. Now, it's my observation that division within the church usually comes over some complex matter of theology, or well, that's the excuse that's normally made, and nearly always the impetus for that sort of uh, sectarianism. Uh, argument about words nearly always comes from the prosperous churches of the West. It's not from the poor under whom the gospel is preached and have willingly accepted it. It's not them, it's not that part of the body of Christ that raises a divisive argument about words. It's nearly always from the prosperous. And it really is a case of not having enough to do and not really being focused as we should be. And that is what this letter is about, about trying to refocus these believers. So then in verse 1, he talks about, uh, in the AV, acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. And the NIV puts it, I think, better, talking about the truth which leads to godliness. Now again, read on in the chapter and see how they kept arguing about fine points of interpretation. The point is that truth leads to godliness. And I think that what it doesn't mean that truth as in a set of uh, theological purity or academic correctness in interpretation will save anybody. The point is that truth leads to godliness. If you really understand God's will and, and God's word, this is related to godly living because one translates those wonderful realities into practice. And this is why he goes on to say later in, in this little letter that grace teaches us. Uh, chapter 2, verse 12, verse 11, the grace of God that's appeared to us teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. So there he says in chapter 2, verse 12, that grace teaches us to live this godly way of life. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says that the truth leads you to godliness. So what is truth? The ultimate truth is that you and I have been saved by grace. The gospel of grace is, in fact, the ultimate truth. That's effectively and practically what our daily sensibilities and consciousness should be all about. That I, by God's grace, am going to live forever and ever in his kingdom, with his nature, with sin a thing of the past for me, that is the ultimate truth, and it's that which leads you to godliness. Not splitting hairs, as he's saying here, about Hebrew words, and getting sidetracked on minor matters of, of interpretation. That's not going to save anybody in itself. So he says in verse 3 that the word of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, has been committed or entrusted unto me. So we have been entrusted with with the gospel. And you've got a similar idea in First Timothy uh, 1 verse 11, this idea of being entrusted. He says the, the glorious gospel was committed, was entrusted to my trust. So God could save people just as he wants, but he has chosen to work through the mechanism of people preaching the gospel. You know, he could just send a kind of uh, a parachute down from heaven 
to that person sitting in that little town and that man sitting in that apartment block in that city and save us. But he chooses to work through people. This is always his, uh, his way. Uh, a little uh, quote I scribbled in my Bible from uh, C.S. Lewis in uh, The World's Last Night, talking about God. He seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye. Creation seems to be delegation through and through. Now, that is about it. I'm not a great fan of C.S. Lewis, though The World's Last Night is... Uh, is an interesting read, um, but uh, that, that, that really is how it is. It is all about divine delegation to us. So then, in one sense, he's delegated his work to us in the parable. You know, he, the Lord Jesus gives away all his wealth to his servants and says, look, you, you go make of it what you can. And one person does better than another at that. The point is, God has taken a risk, like you do, like an employer does, when you delegate a job, when you employ a guy to do a job that you used to do yourself. You take a risk. You delegate that. You, you have no option but, but to do that. And so, it's not, I think, necessarily that if we don't do our part, well, okay, God will get someone else to do it, or he'll do it his own way. Not necessarily. I, I know there's that verse in Esther where Mordecai sort of says to Esther, look, if you don't do this kind of thing, you know, God raised you up for this, this point, uh, for this uh, job that you have to do. And if you don't do it, or maybe deliverance will arise from another place. Uh, that may have been th the case in Esther's time, although I would actually argue that not necessarily. If she'd flunked it, if she said, nah, I'm just going to deny I'm Jewish and that's, that's your problem, well, maybe the whole deliverance would not have come. And so it is, I think, if, we, if there's any meaning in this concept of having had the gospel entrusted to us, if we don't take the gospel to men and women, I don't see that they will maybe ever have the opportunity to learn about God in any other way. If God is going to do it another way, he certainly does not reveal that in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying you can put a... Put a circle around God and say that he can't move outside it, but certainly the Bible is silent, as far as I can see it, about anything like that. Now, this, I think, gives us an insight into chapter 2, verse 11, which says that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Well, in what sense um, has this grace that brings salvation to all appeared? I think that is the sense of the Greek. Uh, God's grace that brings salvation to all has appeared. In what sense, then, has salvation to all appeared? Well, it has appeared, but it doesn't mean that all men shall be saved, simply because we have not taken that message to all of them. And so the fact that not everyone has heard the gospel, I think, is not God's fault. That is the failure of the church, of the body of believers, to have done that job. Now, I just throw that out because that is a, it is a, a hugely difficult question. It's one of the most difficult questions I think there is, this whole question of those that have not heard, and the justice of that and the reason for that. When there are verses like chapter 2, verse 11 of Titus that say that this grace, God's grace that brings salvation to all, has appeared, and yet not all will be saved, and not all have heard of that grace. 
Now, you may like to discuss that afterwards, but uh, that's my take on the whole thing, that yes, it has appeared, but it has not been taken into all the world, to all people, because of the failure of, of believers. And let's come back again to the context of these people in Crete. There they were, living a good life, just entertaining the sailors and passengers now and again, whenever a ship pulled in, and just kicking around the rest of the time. And I think Paul is saying, look here, guys, you can get out there and do something. You've got a superb opportunity with all these people from all over the Mediterranean who are passing through. So then, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's go on to uh, chapter 2 then, uh, verse, verse 9. He says, exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not to answer them back, and not stealing. Uh, why does he say that? Warning servants not to steal. Well, as I understand it, there was a, 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 a sort of a, a thing amongst slaves that they could actually one day, perhaps, buy their freedom. And so they try to steal little bits of property and money from here and there in the hope that one day they might be able to buy back their freedom, or to buy their freedom. And Paul is saying, look, don't, don't get into that. Just don't think in that way. Don't be obsessed with trying to get your freedom your way because, verse 11, for, this is directly in that context of talking about slaves don't, don't steal bit by bit to try to sort of buy your salvation, buy your freedom, because the grace of God that brings salvation, that brings redemption, that brings freedom from everything, including slavery, uh, has appeared. And that teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, etc., we should live godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us. This is definitely the language of redemption from slavery. Now, we, in a sense, are similar to those slaves, that we can think that by our pension schemes and our saving schemes and our uh, very hard work and effort to claw back a bit of money here and make a bit more there, we can, as it were, uh, get to the uh, the capitalist dream that we can make it that we can free ourselves somehow and what he's saying is that you slaves who are in that situation don't do that don't try and be so obsessed with trying to get ultimate freedom in this life trying to save your money and, and do this and that and the other and be quite obsessed with it because God's grace has appeared to you let's just remind ourselves of God's grace that it means that God has chosen to save us simply so, just like that, because he loves us, without any demand for us in that sense to do anything. If we believe that, that, well, okay, I accept it. Of course, you can't be passive to that. You inevitably are so awed by your gratitude that you do something. So the works are not out of, uh, out of the uh, horizon, but they are not done in order to get that salvation. So because that grace has appeared to us, he says in 12, that that grace teaches us. Rather like in Romans, he personifies grace as a king. 
but it reigns through righteousness. That once you get this idea that I have been saved by grace, if Jesus comes back right now, I will live forever by his grace in his kingdom. I have been declared right before the judgment throne of God right now by grace. Not that I should be, but by his grace. That brings out something in practice from gratitude. It reigns, in the language of Romans, like a king in your life. And it brings forth righteousness. Here he says, grace is like a teacher. It teaches you to deny ungodliness and to look forward with confidence to that blessed hope of the appearing of Christ. Now, if we don't know, ultimately, whether Jesus is going to accept us or reject us, if that is a huge question mark at the end of our destiny, then I don't see you can earnestly look forward to that blessed hope. It's not a blessed hope at all. If the appearing of Jesus is for you the day of judgment, which is a huge unknown question, it is not a hope you can call blessed and wonderful, unless you're sure that you're going to be there. It's a, a huge risk, a huge chance. It's a, you know, a bet on a race in the night. You know, will it happen? Will it not? Will I be there? I don't know. That, if that's how we're thinking, and that is, I fear, how a lot of us think, then I think we've missed the point that God's grace has appeared to us, that we will be saved. We will be saved by his grace. And that we can be humbly confident that if Jesus comes right now, I will live forever. I'm not saying once saved, always saved. We may throw it all away tomorrow, but let tomorrow take care for the, th for the things of itself. By grace, we can look forward to that blessed hope with confidence. The appearing of Jesus is therefore bracketed there with that blessed hope. Now, if the appearing of Jesus means judgment, and we don't actually know how that judgment process is going to end, then it seems to me that the appearing of Jesus can't really be bracketed with a blessed hope. It's to be bracketed with a huge question mark about my eternal destiny. But if we are secure in Christ, if we are secure in his love, there's no reason why we should not be, then his appearing is that blessed hope. Because we are sure that by his grace, for all our sin and dysfunction, we will be there. And so he goes on to say that this Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity. So then, remember that these verses are all in the context of 9 and 10, talking about slaves don't steal things off your masters, trying to save up in little pots here and there, bits of money, coins, bits of gold, bits of valuable stuff that you stole from this bloke or you grabbed from that or that you got paid on the quiet for doing this job or got paid on the quiet by the neighbour for doing a favour when your boss was uh, asleep or was away on business or whatever. Look, no, your little pots here and there where you're secretly hiding all this stuff away, forget about it. You have been redeemed because Jesus died for you. And as I say, this does not only have relevance to slaves, it has, I think, very biting relevance to we who live in capitalism gone crazy, where everyone's got their little pots or their little hopes. That's more what it was. Very few slaves ever saved enough money to really redeem themselves. It was all hope. Saving their little bits of coin and this, that and the other in hidden pots hidden here and there. 
<coughs> and that is exactly, that's exactly, in its essence, the spirit of capitalism today, the spirit of the age in which we live, all our little pots here and there, our hopes for redemption. And the point is, you have been redeemed, and the grace of God teaches you otherwise to have another focus in your life that it is responding to that grace that is so important and so he he goes on chapter 3 verse 2 therefore speak evil of no man if we have been saved by grace and have his righteousness imputed to us then speak evil of people Uh, because God and Jesus could do that about you but they chose to speak good of you in the judgment throne of and presence of God himself don't be brawlers the AV says, the RV says contentious if you're really persuaded of God's amazing grace, you won't go around triggering uh, contentions with others you won't have strifes about words and meanings with others, you will just be so gracious because of the grace that's been given to you that you'll focus on that which is common, rather than, as it were, seeking out the fault lines which there are in every context and every relationship, and putting pressure on them and, and trying to bring about the contentions which naturally happen between people. And so he he goes on to say, chapter three, verse uh, three: We used to be like this. But, verse 4, after the the kindness and love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, not by our works of righteousness, but according to his mercy or grace he saved us by the washing or the laver, the, the wash basin of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So then he's saying that we should believe that at our baptism something radical happened now that labour of regeneration that he talks about in verse 5 I think must surely refer to baptism because baptism is a washing away of sins uh, Acts 22:16. that it, it was a washing away of sins for Paul and I think he has that in his own uh, conversion in mind when he says that it Essentially, that's what happens to all of us. So then, this is the the washing of rebirth, the NIV puts it. And of course, there's a lot of similarities with John 3, verses 3 to 5, where he talks about being born again of water and of the Spirit. Now, we tend to fight shy of this whole issue of the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, we tend to think about all the Pentecostal nonsense about speaking in tongues and pulling rabbits out of hats and uh, miracles and raising the dead and all this kind of stuff. Um, This is not the case. Um, I don't think Paul has any of that in view here. He's talking about a regeneration, a renewing, obviously within the human mind. And this is a result of what God has done by grace. We were, talking, we were talking earlier about Romans 8. I talked about that in somewhat more detail, that there in Romans Paul is saying that God has counted us righteous, counted us as if we have the mind of Christ by justifying us by his grace, which we read of here. 
And that in Romans 8 he goes on to talk about the spirit of Christ becoming our spirit. So what we are by status, that we are counted as if we are the Lord Jesus, that we have the mind of Christ, as he says elsewhere, that this actually becomes true of us in practice, in that God is seeking to actually make us like the one, that's Jesus, who we are counted as. Now, our own steel will is not enough to renew our minds. This word for renewing that we've got here in verse 5 of chapter 3, renewing of the Holy Spirit, it's only elsewhere in Romans 12 verse 2, where Paul tells us, tells us to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, he seems to be saying that in Romans 12, allow the process to happen and don't resist it. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here he talks about renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, it's, it's talking about an internal, if you like, psychological process in the human mind. It's not talking about rabbits out of hats or speaking in tongues or, or, or raising the dead and miracles in, in that sense. I mean, the word spirit, uh, admittedly, has got a wide range of use, but it, uh, it effectively means that the mind um, uh, and the power that, that comes from the mind, um, the Holy Spirit is God's way of thinking and being, his spirit. And that is to be ours. And that's why, by his spirit, the mind is renewed. You see, here it talks about renewing of or by the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, verse 2, renewing of your mind. Let it happen. That's what he's saying. Now, this renewing is uh, a process. He has it in mind, I think, in 2 Corinthians 4.16, where he talks about the, the ministry of the Spirit. He says, although our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And in Colossians 3.10, he talks about how we are renewed unto the knowledge of the image of Christ. So then, this renewing is to make us like Christ, is to bring forth the image of Christ, the mental image of Christ, in us, in our minds, in a new creation. We are to be made after his image, in a spiritual sense, in this, this new creation. And there's another passage, of course, that uh, fits in here in verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, talking about the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly in Jesus Christ our Saviour. Romans 5, verse 5, same word, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which he has given unto us. Uh, it's interesting that um, the same word for shed abroad is three times used in Acts 2, 17, 18 and 33 about the gift of the Spirit being shed upon believers at baptism so I think what he's saying here is you people there in Crete who are living there a good life, laid back sort of uh, attitude who've uh, in the free time and between those ships uh, coming and going you're basically just uh, existing just kicking time, look here the grace of God has appeared to you, and you slaves on the island, 
who are desperately trying to, to buy your redemption by, by stealing here and being a bit sly there and everywhere. Look here. There is a huge process to transform your mind into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that process has been set up to start operating at your baptism, to regenerate you, to make you new people. Let it work. Open yourselves up to it. And all these other things, like saving your money and trying to buy your own redemption and freedom and having a good time and getting caught up with the meaning of words and new religious fads from these teachers from the, the circumcision, the, uh, the Jewish teachers, neo-Judaism, etc., etc., arguing, um, brawling, dissensions, uh, speaking evil, gossiping about each other, these talk in the context here about in chapter 3, verse 2. Look here, all that stuff will suddenly just become nothing if you open yourselves up to this process of renewing. Now, of course, the Word of God in all its forms is the dynamic in that process. And yet, as I have said, a guy sitting down with a Bible on a steel will, as he thinks, cannot, in that sense, totally transform himself. There is this renewing of the Holy Spirit, the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which he has given unto us, Romans 5, verse 5. He wants to do something for us. And there's no shame, there's no shame at all, in admitting that I am desperately in need of that. And this, I think, to bring our thoughts to a close and to refocus us upon the, uh, the crucifixion of the Lord, this, I, I think, was the whole meaning when the Lord's side was, was uh, pierced with a spear and there came out blood and water. Um, there came out of him not only the method, if you like, for our forgiveness in, in his blood, but also the water of cleansing. This birth of water and of the Spirit, which John had in mind in, in John chapter 3. This new birth is not only a, an acceptance of, of, of truth in a theological sense, but it is an acceptance of him as a person and his action, potential action, in our minds and hearts to change us to be like the Lord Jesus. And I believe that even more than wanting to be in the kingdom, in the sense of having eternal life, having immortal nature, I believe that our greatest desire should be that in our minds, in our hearts, we think like Jesus. That we act and feel and perceive life uh, and, and think and meditate uh, and, and just structure our whole understanding of everything in the way that he did. That is what ultimately we want more than anything else in the world. And that is what God, through the renewing of the Holy Spirit, is prepared to do and can do and is willing to do if, as Paul says in Romans 12, we allow him to transform us by the renewing of our minds.